This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Min Jin Lee discusses her new novel, Pachinko. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed reports on the U.S. publishing mission to Cuba. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, there's finally movement happening after all these weeks that we've spent saying maybe someday there will be an exciting new book. I have nine books that wow. are new to the hardcover fiction list, and uh, I'm going to actually begin down toward the end uh, with our number 22, which is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. So I'm very excited that we're going to be talking with her later on the show. Excellent. She's the author of Free Food for Millionaires, and our review says that this novel is a sprawling and immersive historical work that tells the tale of one Korean family's search for belonging, exploring questions of history, legacy, and identity across four generations, beginning in Japanese-occupied Korea of the 1910s. We say that uh, Lee's novel is an exquisite meditation on the generational nature of truly forging a home. So that's at number 22 that's on our hardcover exciting. fiction list. It's very exciting. Uh, I can't wait for our conversation with her. So moving back up to the top, we have a new number one, which is Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. Uh, Gaiman already borrowed Odin and Loki for his novel American Gods, and here he decides to expand to a retelling of Norse folklore, more or less of its entirety. Uh, he uh, introduces the main mythological figures, Odin, Thor, and Loki, and uh, tells a series of stories about them and uh, other mm. characters and entities from Norse myth. Uh, we say in our our review that uh, the dialogue is anachronistically current in nature so basically they uh, they banter like you know, 21st century novel characters do and uh, that Gaiman has great fun in bringing these gods down to a human level. He takes a well-worn subject and makes it his own. Oh, very nice. So that's at number one. And at number that's two, we have another new title, Echoes in Death by J.D. Robb, also known as Nora Roberts. Uh, we gave this a starred review. It says she's not only prolific, but consistently inventive, entertaining, and clever in her crime series set in a new future, near future New York City, as shown by this stunning 44th entry in the series um, starring Lieutenant Eve Dallas. Uh, starts in a cold winter night when she and her husband encounter a naked, dazed, and bruised young woman wandering a Manhattan street. Mm. And uh, quickly, one event leads to another. Um, we say that just when Eve appears to have everything sewn up, Rob delivers a final devastating twist. 750,000 copy first printing. Wow. It'll sell every one of them. Um, she is, it, no matter what name she writes under, she is astonishing. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I think really honestly, one of the, the great writers of our time, just mm -hmm. so talented and just often overlooked because of the genres that she writes in. But every one of her books uh, is outstanding. Maybe we can get her to uh, come on the show sometime. Well, that would certainly be very exciting. <laughs> Down at number eight, we have Universal Harvester by John Darnielle. We also gave this a starred review. It begins on the cusp of the 2000s and spans 
spans more than 25 years. It's his second novel, uh, the first being Wolf in White Van, and we say that it's a slow burn mystery thriller whose characters are drawn together by an eerie discovery, mm. um, and specifically uh, a guy who is clerking at a video hut in a small Iowa town um, finds that things turn weird when customers begin to report dark, disjointed, unnerving movies within the movies on their rented VHS tapes. Wow. Uh, we say that Darnielle adeptly juggles multiple stories that collide with chaotic consequences somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so that sounds dark and yeah. twisty and interesting. Down at number 11, we have My Not-So-Perfect Life by Sophie Kinsella, best-selling author, uh, most recently of Shopaholic to the Stars. And we say in our review that with her signature humor, she explores the frequent disconnect between perception and reality in modern life, uh, as seen by a 26-year-old research associate at a branding agency in London. Mm. So someone uh, quite engaged in the shaping of perceptions. Uh, she's trying to live her dream life in the city, but with her tight budget, peculiar roommates, long commute, and tedious work assignments, reality falls short of her expectations. Uh, eventually, she loses her job and moves back home to Somerset, only to have her two worlds collide in unexpected ways. And the book is driven by Katie's witty observations and numerous missteps as she attempts to reconcile various aspects of her identity. We called it smartly satirical and entertaining. That's at number 11. At uh, number 14, Born of Vengeance by Sherilyn Kenyon, the 10th book in her League series. We don't have a review of this one yet, but uh, it features a character who's been kind of in the background uh, of past uh, the past several books. Uh, and uh, He's called Ravin, but uh, many years ago he had another name. Uh, his family was hunted down, and uh, his wife pinned their murders on him. And so now he's set out to clear his name, find out the killers, take them down. And uh, there is a romantic thread, as happens in uh, all the books in this series. Uh, definitely one for the paranormal romance fans. Um, if you're starting the series, don't start here, mm. would be my advice. Um, but uh, it's certainly a, a well-respected series, one worth following. And uh, while we're on the topic of uh, urban fantasy, we have The Turn by Kim Harrison at number 18. This is a prequel to her best-selling Hollows urban fantasy series. Uh, we called it Somewhat Clunky. It goes back to the 1960s to depict the drastic event known as The Turn that sort of shifted the timeline from the world that we know to uh, the world that her characters live in. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's uh, there's some paranormal entities, uh, particularly elves, who are mm -hmm. in disguise in the human world uh, when one of them sabotages a project uh, that another one is working on. He inadvertently unleashes a plague that wipes out a billion humans and threatens the rest, but supernatural races are spared, leaving them no option but to reveal themselves and decide whether to help the humans or stand back and watch them die. Right. Uh, we say that uh, the survivors' reaction to this plague is weirdly understated and uh, that there's a, a romance plot, but it's hard to view an unintentional mass killer as a romantic hero. Right. So, uh, a little awkward there. Um, this fantasy feels more like a thriller set in a 1960s that doesn't entirely ring true and is crammed full of appearances and cameos by numerous familiar characters. Works well as fan service, but you need the rest of the series to give its events meaning. So, that's one strictly for the fans, as they say. <laughs> 
So as I said, at number 22 is Pachinko. Number 23 is Garden of Lamentations by Deborah Crombie, the 17th novel featuring Detective Superintendent Duncan Kincaid and his wife, Detective Inspector Gemma James. Uh, And uh, this is set in London. Uh, Seems to be a present-day mystery. And uh, there's, uh, you know, the usual investigation, um, a lot of interpersonal stress going on, as you might expect when you have a married couple who both work on the police force. And through several points of view, our review says this multifaceted novel provides a sober and cautionary tale about the exploitation of idealism and the abuse of power. And uh, the last book on the list is Robert B. Parker's Revelation. Uh, This is by Robert Knott, and it's continuing Robert B. Parker's series, uh, which uh, has been going on for quite some time now. This is the ninth book about Virgil Cole and Everett Hitch. We don't have a review of it, uh, but uh, they're... Uh, the jacket copy describes them as itinerant lawmen. Um, they're territorial marshals and uh, yeah, at the moment hanging out in Appaloosa uh, with an unlikely and unconventional Yankee detective mm. joining them for this particular uh, happening. It's great to see so many books on the list. It is. It's really, really nice. Um, nice to see big books coming out. Nice to see uh, new books getting interest. I yeah. feel like it's just been a while since that happened. Is right, that happening exactly. in uh, nonfiction too? It's starting to not quite as plentiful, but we do have three, four, five. So uh, only one of them we've reviewed. But but going down the list, number six, uh, you are the universe discovering your cosmic self and why it matters. Deepak Chopra. So that's uh, more of what he does. Uh, and this is what happens when modern science reaches a crucial turning point that challenges everything we know about reality. So this is um, perfect for dealing with what's going on right now. And then we have uh, number 14, I'll Be Damned, How My Young and Restless Life Led Me to America's Number One Daytime Drama by Eric Braden. He's the award-winning star of The Young and the Restless, and uh, here he chronicles his life from his birth in World War II Germany to America, and uh, how he became a daytime superstar for the past 35 years. So, wow. Soap fans would love to read that. Uh, number 22, we have Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. And that is billionaire trader Stephen A. Cohn, whose rise and fall of his hedge fund, SAC Capital, was the largest insider trading investigation in history. So, um, so we're going to get a lot of current event stuff going on. Mm-hmm. That's at number 22. Finally, number 25, on the terms of, you know, theme of money, Beth Koblener, make your kid a money genius, even if you're not. Uh, Koblener is the author of Get a Financial Life, a personal financial expert who believes it is almost never too early to talk to kids about money. We say that she has written a book that belongs on every parent's shelf. Uh, this is more than just a conversation starter or primer. The book gathers together an abundance of bulleted lists of rules and tips, explanations of complex issues, and sidebars and boxes with illustrations of financial documents. So, a little bit there, a little bit of finance, a little bit of current events. That sounds and fun. Soap opera memoir. So, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Min Jin Lee tells us how Korean immigrants survived in early 20th century Japan. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Min Jin Lee on the line. Her new book is Pachinko. Hello, Min. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mark and Rose. So your first novel, uh, Free Food for Millionaires, was about Korean immigrants to the U.S. And in this novel, Pachinko, you explore a Korean couple's move to Japan in the 1910s. Set the story for us. What, what was going on then? Oh, in 1910, Japan annexed Korea, and Korea became a kind of breadbasket for Japan, because Japan, even now, is a country without much natural resources. It has a lot of water, it has a lot of educated people, and that's really great, but they didn't have a lot of food source. So in order for Japan to expand, they actually had to um, annex this country. Well, they felt they needed to annex this country. And Korea became a source of labor and a source of food for Japan. Consequently, a lot of Koreans ended up migrating to Japan as a labor source, as well as just because uh, for its wanting to be economic migrants. So um, was this couple, this, uh, and specifically uh, Sunja, the central character, um, she was kind of part of, of all of that flow? Exactly. And, you know, um, I gave you the inciting incident that was a historical moment. However, so many different kinds of Korean ja- Koreans went to Japan to live there. And my character, she's almost ahistorical, and she kind of reflected all the interviews that I did in Japan where a lot of Koreans went to Japan not because they were just forcible laborers, which actually happened during the war when they needed munitions workers or mine workers, but she went there because she got pregnant She married a missionary, and then she moves to Osaka, and she didn't know if she would stay there forever, but that's what what ended up happening due to the forces of history. So tell us a little bit more about Sunja and her situation in Korea and um, who this pastor is. Oh, well, she's essentially a child who got pregnant. She's 16. She falls in love with an older married man who she does not know is married. She becomes pregnant by him, and of course he cannot marry her. And she decides not to marry him, and not to be his kind of consort or mistress in Korea. Her mother runs a boarding house. They don't own the boarding house. They just manage it, and they make an income from it. And um, a a missionary pastor comes from the north to the south, and before he gets on a boat to go to Japan, he actually falls very ill with tuberculosis, Youngjin and Sanja take care of him, nurse him back to health, and he actually offers to marry Sanja even though he's fully aware that she's pregnant with another man's child, and they go to Japan together. So, um, returning to the title of the book, tell us about Pachinko and its significance to Japanese culture and to Sanja's story. Pachinko, as you may know, is a vertical pinball game that's actually a very important part of the Japanese economy today. It's a $190 billion business, which is twice the export revenues of the Japanese car industry. And one out of 11 people in Japan play it regularly. What's important is that when I interviewed all these people who are Korean-Japanese in Japan, almost every single person had some member of his or her family who was related to Pachinko, either distantly or very closely. And the reason why that is is because Japan for about even to today, uh, has had a policy of very severe discrimination against the Koreans in Japan. So many Koreans or ethnic Koreans could not participate in regular workforce. So they ended up going to a lot of small businesses. And Pachinko was one of the industries 
where people could participate who were of ethnic Korean heritage. However, the pachinko industry, even though it's a very important industry, is seen widely with contempt by the middle class of Japan as organized crime, as a suspect uh, behavior, because it's related to gambling. So if you are part of the pachinko business, people often think of you as somebody who's sort of shameful, even though it's widely played by Japanese people. So once uh, Sunja, and uh, I'm sorry, the name of the pastor? Isak. Isak. Goes to Japan. Tell us what happens there when they they first arrive. How do they settle in, and what, what is their life like there? Well, it's really interesting because Hunda is not a wealthy kid. She is 16, she's pregnant, and she is the boarding house keeper's daughter, and by no means are they well off. So they're, very the, they're at the very bottom rung of the Korean society. However, when they go to Japan, she's thinking that she's marrying a minister, and whatever we have ideas about ministers, we don't often think of them as being indigent, but all Koreans who went to Japan had to live in a ghetto in Osaka, and this ghetto in Osaka is called Ikuno today, A-K, I'm sorry, I-K-U-N-O today. However, back then it was called Ikaino. And in this ghetto, people are living in essentially shanty towns with corrugated metal, found materials, um, no windows, no glass for windows. And that's pretty much where they had to live. They often live with animals. They often had to live, you know, 10 to 12 people to essentially a space for one person or two people because you could not find housing for Koreans because Koreans were not considered regular people where you would um, allow your place to be rented. So um, they end up in this shanty town, uh, and presumably mm-hmm. at some point Sanja has her child. Um, what is that like, raising a child in that environment? What's that like for her and, and her new husband? It's incredibly difficult because at that time you're a colonial member of Japan, so you're technically kind of part of the empire. So if you could, you would send your child to school, but that there are fees involved, and that's really tricky. The other thing that happens is that Isak is sent to jail, and I'm not giving much away, um, because he is associated with somebody who does something that's considered in violation of imperial edicts of Shinto worship. Hmm. Because Shintoism is a national religion in which the emperor is considered a god. That's still true today. So if you were a Christian or any other religion and you believe in a separate god, it violated... Um, govern orders. Wow. That, this sounds like there's so much built into this about um, Japanese culture and the, the intricacies of it. How did you research all of this? You mentioned that you went to Japan and interviewed a lot of Korean Japanese. Mm-hmm. I lived there from 2007 to 2011, but I had done almost all of my research from, I guess, 1995 mm-hmm. until 2002. Because I, I had an entire manuscript already done before I went to Japan, but it wasn't a very good novel. It was actually kind of like a wannabe history book, and I knew that it didn't work, and because my first book that I've, I mean, the first novel manuscript that I ever wrote was widely rejected, I just figured that this was another practice novel, and then I wrote Free Food for Millionaires. And when I moved to Japan in 2007, I returned back to Pachinko. 
And what was that like for you? I'm, uh, you know, publishing it or going back to it after having written Free Food for Millionaires. It was really depressing. I was really sad because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And I don't know how other people write books. I've only produced two and I'm 48 years old. I feel like writing novels is like this thing that you really can't be taught. Um, you can learn, I think, skills about fiction writing, but novels have to be written in order to know that it's a novel or not. And I knew there was something wrong because I'm a good reader. I know when a book works or not, but I wasn't able to necessarily teach myself how to write those novels until I wrote them. So then I ended up having to throw away that entire manuscript and start all over again because after I interviewed all these people, I realized that manuscript wasn't salvageable. So I started again, and instead of the time frame beginning in 1970s, it actually started in 1910 because I don't think it's possible to understand the modern Korean-Japanese person without going back to his or her genesis story, which is really around 1910. And what led you to write about the Korean-Japanese experience, or I should say various Korean-Japanese experiences um, in, you know, specifically as a topic? I attended a lecture in 1989 when I was 19 years old, and an American missionary who worked with the Korean-Japanese community in Osaka, namely the people that I wrote about, ended up writing about, and he told um, the people who attended the lecture all about the history of the Korean-Japanese, which I knew nothing about. And as he was telling the history, I thought that was sort of interesting, but it didn't really affect me. And then he told us one story where he talked about a 13-year-old boy who had climbed up to an apartment building and he leapt to his death. And naturally, his parents were devastated and they went through his things and they found his middle school yearbook. And in the yearbook, his classmates had written, um, go back to where you came from. You smell like kimchi, you smell like garlic, which is considered a terrible insult in Japan because Japanese really are very sensitive to smells and tastes and food. Mm. And they said, finally, um, they had written, die, die, die. And although everything about what the missionary was saying was interesting, it didn't really affect me, but that story in particular made an, a great impression on me. And I really couldn't let it go. And I think something that I listened to when I was 19, it still affects me today. And I felt very compelled to work on this book. I'm not really sure why, except for that story. And it's interesting to me how I really had to fix it somehow. And I did feel like, um, I did feel the sense of the story called me. It wasn't like me picking it. Once you, uh, you, you had Free Food for Millionaires published, you went back to this one. Was that a surprise to you or was it because you were living in Japan at the time? It was a kind of accident because we didn't intend to go to back to Japan. I mean, we didn't intend to go to Japan and I didn't intend to go back to Asia where I had originally been born. But we went there because my husband got a good job and we needed the money and we moved there and I figured, well, if I'm here, I'm going to interview the Korean Japanese people and see how far I can get. And through some really lucky coincidences, I was given really big introductions to people, including pachinko parlor owners and the Korean Japanese from all different political parties because 
if you're Korean Japanese today, you have either three citizenship routes. You're either North Korean identified, South Korean identified, or you're a Japanese citizen. And Japanese citizens are the minority of the three. So there are people today who have an affiliation with North Korea who have never been there, who have an affiliation with South Korea who have never been there, but they carry the South Korean passport or they have an identification card saying that I identify with North Korea, which is tricky because Japan and North Korea, they don't have a diplomatic relationship. Mm-hmm. So you, essentially you can't travel. You're a stateless person. So what is the what are the relations like now between Korean immigrants and and Japanese? I think that in general, I want to argue that interpersonally it can be good. However, if you ever meet a Korean Japanese person, I would bet you $100 they wouldn't tell you that they're Korean right away. It would take some time because very often they um, have their Japanese names. And they use this name because historically they were required to, but then they end up using their Japanese name because it becomes socially easy. And it's very tricky to actually ask if you are Korean because it's almost, um, because, because very often they are seen as a community in which they're morally suspect. And I wish that I was making this up, but it, it's true. So it's almost like asking somebody if you are a certain religion mm. or a certain ethnicity, especially if they can pass with the majority. And even if you can feel necessarily very proud of being, let's say, Korean or Italian or Jewish, because other people in that group are not liked by the majority, you have to be careful about your identity to protect yourself or your family. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Min Jin Lee, author of Pachinko. Um, so you said you were born in Asia. You came to the States, and then um, you later moved back to Japan for those years. How did that shape the story of living in someone else's country? You know, it's funny, because now I've lived in technically somebody else's country twice. So I was born in Korea, and I came to the U.S. in 1976 when I was seven and a half, and then I went back to Asia to live in Japan as an American from um, 2007 to 2011, raising a child in middle school. So both experiences really made me realize how much more entitlement that I felt because I think now I really see myself as a naturalized American citizen with all the full rights and benefits of being an American person. And because I grew up with such Um, incredible privilege, not economically, but a kind of social privilege. Mm. I had so many great teachers and friends in Elmhurst, Queens, who really kind of encouraged me to keep going. And I did feel like an American from a very early age. And when I went to Asia and I saw how people were treated socially, it really shocked me. Like, I was so surprised. And I think that level of surprise really is linked to the fact that when you are a naturalized American you are allowed to feel like an American, not just a hyphenated American. And I think my sense of 
outrage or shock or surprise or unease with how Korean Japanese live had, had a great deal to do with my sense of entitlement. It reminds me of going to Italy with my father, who's from southern Italy, uh, mm-hmm. though raised in, you know, raised, lived his whole life in, in the States. Went back, we were in northern Italy, actually in Tuscany, and uh, hearing his dialect, the Italians really condescended to him. Uh, yeah. But it was only upon, and, and his stature, uh, he's also a, a painter, so he had paint, you know, he, he's a sculptor, but he had, you know, a paint on him, so he looked like a worker. Uh, and it wasn't only, it wasn't only until after that they realized that he was American that they just become friendly towards him. And he was in a different class or in a different uh, community uh, uh, than where he just southern Italian it's so amazing to me of how much class is class informs so many things and whether we think of class as a socioeconomic status or whether it's an educational status or a social status it's constantly in the atmosphere and people are always negotiating with this thing that's not spoken about and it's um, it's almost like this really ugly elephant in the room Right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and um, I I'd sort of the the opposite. Uh, no one in the states ever looks at me and says, "Oh, you're obviously English," even though I'm I'm half English. So I thought, well, I'll go to England, and then it'll be really obvious that I'm English and I belong. I went to England. And I realized that I have never felt more Jewish, which is the other half of my heritage, because to the English, I don't look like them. I look Jewish uh, mm-hmm. because uh, they're used to not seeing Englishness because it's all it's all around them. Uh, so it, uh, these experiences of uh, a friend of mine will say very seriously that she's biracial, Norwegian and Swedish. And if she's in Norway or in Sweden, that you know, she absolutely feels that she's biracial. Um, and uh, and meanwhile, in the U.S., people are just like, well, you're white. So all of these racial distinctions are also uh, sort of visible in some circumstances and not in others. Uh, I think most white Americans would have no concept of what it even means to be a person of Korean descent passing as Japanese because we have that sort of all Asians look the same thing going on in white American culture. And meanwhile, in Asia, all those features are are quite distinct. Well, it's funny that you say that. I mean, it's so accurate because being Asian American is a very bizarre American creation. It's like a tent that right. we created that it doesn't really exist anywhere else. Like being Latino is a tent that does not exist in South America, Central America, or Latin America, any of any of it. So if you're from Honduras, you don't think, oh yes, my alliances are with somebody from Colombia or or even being European, I think that that's the reason why the EU is having all these problems currently is because every country has its own distinct a culture. Also, there's been a lot of history that we don't talk about, that we don't know about, that's happened in Europe as well as in Asia. So when I was in Japan, people would often say to me things that were very negative about the Japanese, and I would be really shocked, saying, how could you say that? How could you say that Japanese women are gold diggers? I mean, I would hear things like this regularly from expatriates, and they would think, oh, it's okay, I can tell you because you're Korean. And I'm thinking, I don't take any comfort or pleasure in putting down people from any group. In the same way, I think, you know, 
in New York, New York City, just because I grew up with so many people from Jewish background, there's a huge distinction between Sephardic Jews or Ashkenazi Jews. Mm-hmm. And there's all these distinctions of class that actually operate in terms of when you came here. And I think one of the great things about America is that you can actually study it, have integrity in your background, as well as be the majority when you want to be. And I think the tent of America is a really beautiful one. And I must confess that the headlines that I'm seeing right now are really unrecognizable to me in my experience. I'm so surprised by everything that's going on right now against immigration because that's really not how I grew up. I don't think it's the way most of us grew up. I agree. Um, I think it's uh, it's really challenging to grapple with all of the different immigrant narratives uh, that are swirling around the ones that make it into the newspapers and the ones that don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I in, in our review, we say the novel reveals the complexities of family national history. When is history a burden, and when does history lift a person up? Which is a little bit what we're talking about. But can you address that a little bit more? I guess the first line of my book is, history has failed us, but no matter. And I intentionally had it become the word us, which is a first-person plural, and I intentionally made history into an anthropomorphized uh, being, I made history actually a person. And I did it intentionally because sometimes what I really, well, I guess all the time, I think about this all the time, which is that history is an incomplete discipline. It is an amazing discipline. I trained in history in college, and I trained in it because I love it so much. I love this idea of looking at the documents and creating a story. That said, the experience of most people around the world is that we don't leave documents. So all the history that we have are for those who had documents or for those who had witnesses, which means that if you were in World War I and you were a poor English kid and you died, nobody knows anything about you. So it isn't just the incomplete history of people of color or women. It's actually that we have an incomplete history of the world. And for me, I feel like very often history occurs without regular people participating at the table. So history does fail us all the time. That said, in my experience of having interviewed so many people and also having just witnessed life is that it doesn't matter because you persist. And that, for me, was a tie-in with the allegory of Pachinko, a game that's essentially rigged. It's not fair. And yet people still continue to play. So how can we, I mean, how could we even decide to play or to not play, to participate or not participate in history? Uh, It it seems like that's more than just a matter of do you leave behind a, a diary or some other documentation? I guess the way we participate in history is by living our lives fully, and you can be politically or, or you can be politically engaged. I think that'd be an obvious way to participate in history. But I think we also participate in history by leaving documents, but also by living our lives fully the way we are and trying to be heard, and as well as listening to those voices that wish to be heard. I find that very often the people who are excluded are middle-class people and working-class people from history. And that's disturbing to me because that's most of us. So what about Sunja's history? I think Sunja's history would be a really classic example of who would care about the life of a poor pregnant girl. Hmm. And I think actually all of us really do care. I think we encounter her all the time. However, 
we don't have the time often to think about all the different steps that she's made. And I do care about writing about the poor. It's very important to me personally, just because I know so many poor people. I grew up in a very modest background, and I think they're fascinating to me. And I'm not quite sure if it has a popular appeal, but I, I did want to honor that. I wanted to honor the choices that regular people make with their lives. So how else did you research in addition to interviewing all of those folks in Japan? I read a great deal of academic texts because right now there is not a single work of fiction written originally in English about the Korean Japanese. Wow. There's not one. You're looking at it. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was working on it, I kept on thinking maybe it doesn't exist because nobody cares. And that could be true. I don't know. I did know that there are many scholars around the world who have been studying the Korean Japanese population who are often called a Zainichi, which is a misnomer that I don't often use, but it's used very, very commonly in Japan. There's like nothing wrong with it technically by saying Zainichi, but it's something that certain academics take very strong contention with because Zainichi, the term in Japanese means foreign resident staying in Japan. So you're actually calling yourself a foreign resident and you could be three generations in. So that's the reason why certain academics refuse to use the term. So I just sort of follow along with that because I think that makes sense to me. That said, um, when I did my research, I interviewed a lot of people, but I read a great deal of ethnographies, war diaries. I read um, history books, obviously, and sociology texts. And I looked at a lot of data, actually, just to see the numbers of things because I wanted to understand how to explain the movement of people and why people move, because a lot of historians tend to have a thesis about the forced, the forced migrant workers, the, the many tens of thousands of people who died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were Korean, and they died because they were working in mines and munitions factories or aircraft building factories during the war, and they were the ones who were bombed. And most people don't know that, but they were not the enemy of the state. They were just forced labor, labor, laborers for Japan. And a lot of people focus on them, and their history is very important. However, I wanted to write about the two million people who actually moved to Japan, and very often they moved there because of economic issues, which are, of course, related to colonialism, but it wasn't always to work in a mine. So, as you said, there's nothing written in English on this, so I'm assuming you were going to Korean texts, Korean books. Actually, I was working with Korean texts which were translated into English, or I was working with primarily everything that was written in English. No, I was not working with originally written in Japanese or Korean. My, my skills in those languages are not at that level. Do you write while you research? I mean, you said you had this original novel draft that you had to dispose of entirely, but when you were sort of working on on the draft that became this finished book, was it sort of an alternation between the researching and the writing, or did all the research happen first and the writing after? I did most of the heavy lifting before, and then I wrote the first manuscript, and then I had other questions, and then I abandoned that text because I felt like there's no way I can finish it in terms of the way I wanted it to. And then I, I figured that book was never going to see the light of day. And then by accident, we went to two, we went to j- live in Japan, 
And when I did go there, I had more research questions, but they became questions of a different kind. They became the questions of a novelist. And I think, for example, like I would go to open markets and talk to women who work there, and I would ask questions like, well, you know, do they have this kind of style of fried dough in 1935 hmm. or something? And they would say things to me like, are you going to buy something or not? <laughs> You know, because they're looking at me like, why do you care? So then, of course, like I would buy something just to have the opportunity to keep talking to them. So that kind of research happened, which I don't think I would have thought about doing in my first manuscript. My second manuscript is really about people, and it's about one family, because I feel very confident now about writing about one family. I no longer feel confident about writing about the whole history of the people. And I think that's really funny, because I probably know a lot more than I ever did, but now that I've met a lot of people, I, I'm, I'm a lot more anxious about telling that story. So right now you're on book tour. Uh, you've been uh, doing lots of readings. I've been seeing you on social media. The reception has been really warm and wonderful. Um, have you even started thinking about what might be next? Oh, yeah. My third book is going to be called American Hogwan. And in my mind, I've always had this sort of grand vision of a trilogy, and it's called the Koreans Trilogy. So the first book is about Koreans in America. Mm -hmm. The second book is about the Koreans in Japan. And the third book is about the role of education for Koreans around the world, because education is seen as a kind of savior for so many Koreans around the world. And I guess I wanted to question that, so I'm going to focus on a cram school. Hagwon is a cram school where kids go and study after school and they just stay there pretty much until the light of, you know, dawn. And it's with the hopes of kids getting into fancy colleges. And I'm critiquing this tutoring company and I'm going to sort of explore this tutoring company based in New York City that's much designed like Hagwon's in Korea. Wow. Well, that definitely sounds like something to keep an eye out for. Do you do you have a sense of timeline for it? I know you've you've written uh, and a friend shared the uh, introduction to the tenth anniversary edition of mm-hmm. Free Food for Millionaires, where you talk about just how long it took you to to work on that. Do you feel like your process has sped up at all over the course of writing books and getting comfortable with them, or do you do you think this is going to be another sort of lengthy process for you? I really hope it's sped up, Rose. <laughs> like, I mean, really. <laughs> With all my heart and soul, I hope that it's sped up. I think that the thing that really took me the longest thing, and, and that essay meant a lot to me, it was really difficult to write. But I guess everything for me is really difficult to write. But that essay meant a lot to me because I wanted to learn something really weird. I wanted to learn how to write 19th century omniscient prose and that style mm-hmm. and that point of view, and which nobody really does anymore. And I wanted to do it because those are the books that I really learned how to become an English speaker and writer and reader. And because I fell in love with those books so early and because that love has really stayed with me, I wanted to write in that way. However, I didn't want to write those sentences. I didn't want to write these like you know, very clunky, very in-your-face sentences. I wanted to have a very subtle philosopher because behind every single story by Balzac or Dickens or George Eliot or Tolstoy, there is a subtle philosopher. I wanted to learn how to write it almost as if that philosopher was more of a witness. And then I concentrated on learning the sentences of Joan Didion or John Updike, who write beautiful, clear, sparkling sentences. And I, and I thought, oh, those are my teachers. And learning how to write a modern sentence with a very old-fashioned way of storytelling 
was my obsession for about 20 plus years. And it was weird and expensive and like, I don't even know why I did it, but that's what I really <laughs> wanted to do. <laughs> and now I'm kind of hoping that now that I figured out the technique, then because I don't feel any problems with finding subject matter or stories, mm. I'm kind of hoping that it's sped up. But, you know, these are famous words, right? I mean, who knows? <laughs> well, I certainly wish you the very best of luck with it. You've, uh, you've set yourself an impressive challenge. Oh, thank you, Rose. Thank you, Mark. We've been talking with Min Jin Lee, and you can find her book, Pachinko, in stores right now. Min, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really quite an honor. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about his recent trip to Cuba. Stay tuned. This is Daniel Jose Older, author of the Bone Street Roomba series and the Shadow Shaper series, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about what's happening in the Cuban book world. Hi, Calvin. Buenos dias. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome back. So you just got back from Cuba, yes. um, and uh, yes. this is your uh, second annual yes. trip, and yeah. it sounds like um, there may be more in your future. So tell us well, a little bit more about this. I, I certainly hope you're right, um, but this is the, um, the U.S. publishing mission to Cuba, and this is the second version of it. We went last year. Uh, this is an effort organized by Publishers Weekly and Combined Book exhibit and that's with a shout out to our, our publisher Kevin Breyerman and to the uh, president of Combined Book, Book Exhibit uh, John Malinowski. Uh, this was their vision uh, and they executed this. Um, uh, the Cuban people are, are wonderful embracing but uh, Cuba is a socialist bureaucracy and uh, it uh, takes a little determination to get things done even when everybody's in agreement that the thing should happen. But what we're doing is basically taking American publishers to Cuba, we hold, uh, uh, and by to Cuba, I mean to the Havana Book Fair, really an extraordinary event. Um, we do a day of panels talking about the American book publishing industry. This year, well, we, and in, in the afternoon, we did it in the morning, and in the afternoon, the Book Institute of Cuba, which is the government body that really uh, oversees all of Cuban publishing, they do a series of panels talking about the Cuban book industry. So um, tell us a little bit about some of the panels that happened at this event. Uh, well, I moderated all of the, uh, the morning panels. And, uh, and I should say we had a different group this year. We had about 40 publishers last year. We had about 30 this year, publishers and publishing uh, professionals, uh, agents, um, packagers, distributors. So this year we did three panels on copyright, distribution, and digital, made up of different people. Uh, some of the new people that were on, we had really excellent publishers. For me, the, a real delight. Ted Adams, who is the CEO and publisher of IDW Publishing, which is one of the uh, the largest independent graphic novel publishers in the U.S. Mm. So it was great to have. There was another comics guy along for this mm. trip, but we also had uh, Judith Kerr, uh, what president and publisher of H the Atria Publishing Group at Simon and Schuster. Uh, we had um, Alex Correa, president of Electorum, uh, which is a publisher and a distributor of Spanish language books to the Spanish-speaking market in the U.S. Oh, we had agents. We had literary agents. Um, uh, Amy Burkhauer, the chair at the Writer's House. Kim Witherspoon, from, who's a partner at Inkwell Management. So they, uh, a selected group of the members were on these three panels, and I moderated them. And then we basically offered a, uh, our view of how the American book publishing industry works, and we took questions from the audience. 
And in the afternoon, panels, uh, well, with opening remarks by, I want to make sure I get his name right here, Juan Rodriguez Cabrera, who is the president of the Book Institute of Cuba, this the organizing body. Uh, he, he opened it up. And um, then there were panels there about book rights. Uh, there were panels about um, the book promotion, educational publishing. And I, I also had an opportunity to do a one-on-one interview, uh, interview with Juan Rodriguez Cabrera, the president, about, about the, the Havana Book Fair and other aspects of the Cuban publishing. Did this event mostly take place in English, or was it bilingual? Uh, our, our conference was bilingual, simultaneous uh, English-Spanish translation. Of course, the Havana Book Fair itself, and our conference was off-site. Mm. The, in fact, the Havana Book Fair takes place at an amazing place. It takes place at a local fortress, I call it a local fortress. It was built in the 18th century to protect the city and the, and the, and the harbor um, of Havana. It's called La Cabana. Uh, it's a sprawling, amazing fortress. It's now a museum, and the entire place is taken over by, by the book exhibit, really uh, with publishers from around the world. Uh, obviously, it's all in Spanish, uh, but there are panels, professional panels, on the, um, the fairgrounds. And we did several of those. In fact, I interviewed uh, Ted Adams. This was very interesting. I interviewed Ted Adams during the professional panels at the Havana Book Fair. And comics fans and writers and publishers showed up. Actually, it was really great. And um, they they were all familiar with the ID the IDW comics because they all uh, downloaded them from Pirate Bay. So, uh, but Ted said, you know, this is the first time I've been happy that my books were pirated. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it builds your fan base. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, and we had translators there uh, as well. In fact, I should mention uh, Layla Ahuil, who is our our Latin American correspondent, who did incredible work moderating panels as well as uh, translating, like constantly at the drop of a hat. What was the feeling like for... Uh, well, there was... Well, certainly, the, there was a feeling of reunion in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that continued from the last the last um, uh, trip down there last year to the Havana Book Fair. We, we did sign a memorandum, Publishers Weekly Combined Book Exhibit, signed a memorandum of understanding with the, the Cuban Book Institute to work together to bring uh, the book industries of two, two countries closer together. I mean, our hope, of course, is to lay the groundwork for future business relationships, of course, but all of this is, uh, um, rides on what happens with the, uh, the book, em- uh, excuse me, the, the American economic embargo against Cuba. Now, of course, under our new political administration in Washington, D.C., everything is kind of uncertain when it isn't downright worrisome. The, uh, the Cuban officials took note of that. Um, and in their conversations with me and in our interview, um, uh, Mr. Um, Cabrera, you know, he said, that, look, we're obviously we're optimistic um, and we're optimistic about the American people. Uh, we're probably, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, yeah, we're not so optimistic about the government, but we're observing uh, and, you know, we, we, we're not going to let political obstacles keep us from talking and planning and trying to bring these two industries together. So there was a certain amount of, um, uh, of worry over where uh, U.S.-Cuba relations are going. Mm-hmm. But there, is, there continues to be optimism. We continue to want to work with uh, the, the Cuban Book Institute and particularly uh, the Cuban people and Cuban publishers. Part of our understanding is that we will bring people from the Book Institute and hopefully down the road authors to uh, Book Expo. Mm-hmm. And um, from what I understand, that's still on. So we're going to see how it goes. 
Sounds uh, mm-hmm. sounds like a very exciting trip. Can you give us more of a sense of what the vibe was there in general? You know, it was, obviously, mm-hmm. this, the Havana Book Fair was bustling. It was amazing. I mean, you have to visit this. I mean, the place looks like a castle, first of all. I mean, it, there's a moat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not exaggerating. And tens of thousands of people stream into it every day. Now, the Havana Book Fair is actually a series of events. It spends about 10 days in Havana. Mm. And then from February to April, it travels uh, to every province in Cuba. There are 16 provinces. And some of them are, are rural, so two provinces sometimes host it in one. The international component of the show really is basically in Havana. But what it does the rest of the country is it takes Cuban publishers and their authors, and it basically takes them on a, on a big circuit mm. around the country and presents them to people, gives them an opportunity in, uh, uh, to see what's being published in conjunction with all kinds of other cultural events. So what, it means, what that means is, is that, that both libraries and government-sponsored bookstores uh, are hosting authors, musicians, artists of all kinds under a big umbrella of culture. But uh, according to the Book Institute, um, by the time they're done this year, you know, more than 4 million people will have come in contact or attended some event around Cuba that has to do with the Havana Book Fair. Even within the city, I was told that they had, um, and it, within Havana, they had well over 100,000 more people than they had the year before. Wow. But it's wow. really amazing. I mean, it streams. I and mean, you go to the publisherswiki.com, you can see some of the photos. And the streets of this 18th century, you know, fort are just thick with people. And, you know, this is, goes on every day for 10 days. I was also told that this is, you know, this is the, the year when the most, the widest variety of books from all around the world are available in Cuba. And uh, the Cuban people save up all year to buy as many books as they can. And books are, and books are subsidized in, in the country, so they, they're very cheap. Hmm. So it, it's really, really a celebration of the power of reading um, to go to this, this book fair. Wow. What an amazing thing, a, a country where reading is valued so much that well, books are yeah. subsidized. We're told, uh, and I have no reason to doubt, that uh, the literacy rate in Cuba is over 90%. That's amazing. So um, they really do value books. Children's books are like a huge part of it. Uh, it's really just an extraordinary event, and I'm just very grateful that I've been lucky enough to be part of it for two years. What do the Cuban people gravitate towards? What kind of what kind of books? You just yeah. mentioned children's books. Are, is it mostly fiction for adults? There's all, well, at the book fair, there's everything. But without a doubt, what p- families and people are there because it's overrun with kids and families. They're there for children's books of all kinds, picture books. I mean, you see. Now you have to remember, uh, publishers throughout Latin America and the world, there is no embargo, so they're they're right. all there, and and it's a selling fair. Everybody's there to sell books, except the American publishers. Right. Uh, and I should say also, mention that we brought 400 titles with us. We put them on display, uh, representing the publishers, um, the publishers who were on the trip, and other publishers who contributed books to be a part of this display. I think Penguin Random House uh, contributed a, a, bu- a bunch of titles to be on the play. Um, like I said, Ted Adams had, uh, we had graphic novels on display from IDW. Uh, we can't sell them because of the embargo, but so the books are donated to the Book Institute at the end of the uh, the run of the fair. Mm. But people are looking for children's books 
I mean, overwhelmingly. Now, but there are also uh, books from uh, academic publishers. There are there is fiction, poetry. Uh, there's really everything you can want. And it's interesting. The American publishers we we bring down there are an, are an official representative, an official exhibitor at the fair. But there are other American publishers who have always gone to the fair, particularly ones attached with the Mar- you know the Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. So Pathfinder Press. They're they're there every year. You know, they now they're not a part of our official American uh, too because they they go anyway. Right. Um, but we are. Uh, you know, last year we were the first official American presence in the history of the book fair, and so we were back again this year. Well, and uh, presumably you're already looking ahead to next year. I certainly am. We 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 hope to be back. I mean, you know, you you usually have to overcome uh, overcome more than a, a handful of uh, bureaucratic obstacles. Um, but we're there. We're we're happy. I, I I never encountered anyone on the on the among the group that wasn't absolutely thrilled to be here. We also tour around. There's some tourism. You know, we go to the went to the National Museum of Fine Arts, the National Library. Uh, you know, we visit you know historic sites. Uh, but everyone is thrilled to be there. Everyone's thrilled to be there in relationship to books. And nothing is better than than being around. Uh, the Cuban people and seeing uh, their thrill and their energy and excitement being in a, in a place devoted to books. Well, Calvin, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show and uh, we look forward to your report next spring. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Brad Stone, author of The Upstarts. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 